All right, so uh, we, we ended last week looking at uh, the fact that the Lord's Supper is to re- be received only by those who are able to discern its true meaning. Uh, we read in Scripture that we are to discern the body of Christ, and that has to do with uh, discerning what is put on display before us in the supper and uh, what, what his body broken for you and his blood shed for you means in the supper um, and discerning the body of Christ uh, is something that requires uh, mental ability uh, the the capability of true self-examination, uh, contemplation upon the elements, uh, and uh, we saw that uh, in Luke chapter 2 that Christ, when he went to partake of the Passover for the first time, he didn't do so as an infant, uh, but instead, it wasn't until he was 12 years old that he partook of that sacrament for the first time. He was able to uh, rightly understand what that, that sacrament of the Passover meant. Um, and if you read of, of the Passover in the Old Covenant, you'll, you'll see that when Moses is talking about it, he says, and when your children ask why you do this. Um, And so he's showing that the sacrament being partaken of by those who are able to rightly uh, understand it and receive it is to be a a teacher to those who are of the unlearned, uh, those who are not capable of doing this, those who have not... um, been able to discern what it is that is being uh, done there. And so the, the children do not partake in the Passover, but they observe and they ask questions about it. In uh, some of you parents, I don't know if you ever experience this when you're sitting there eating uh the bread and drinking the wine of communion and then afterwards maybe on your drive home your child will will ask questions about what that was what why did you eat the bread why did you drink uh the wine why why couldn't i do it um the first time i experienced this was when i was in pittsburgh at grace gibsonia and uh Esther asked, why, why can't I have any? Uh, why do you get to take that? And, and that's a perfect opportunity to explain what it is that's being done there in the meal. Uh, so that when the time comes for her to make that covenant her own and to unite herself with the church as a communing member, she will have already had copious amounts of instruction 
on what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper, what it means to discern the body of Christ. Um, And we saw that this pattern of needing to understand, needing to be able to do this uh, self-examination and this uh, discerning of the body, when you connect that with what we see of Christ, uh, not partaking of the Passover until the age of 12, we get a clearer picture of uh, who are the recipients of the supper. And we saw uh, very pointedly uh, the heinousness of uh, Pato communion, of feeding the supper to your uh, infant children and even to the young children, the unlearned, uh, those who are not able to rightly discern the body of Christ. Um, And obviously there's no set age uh, within the Jewish community. There was one and it was 12 years old. That's when it was expected that a man, a boy, would cross over into manhood within the synagogue, within the church, um, that he would uh, affirm his faith in Jehovah and display his knowledge of the word and the sacraments. And we do something similar. Uh, you know, we have a, we have the membership class that, that, many of you went through um, and that's where you you really get to get a heightened teaching on the doctrines of the church and what they what they mean Uh, you get a heightened teaching on what it means to covenant yourself with this body Um, and then there's an examination process before being uh, admitted into communicant membership before being admitted to the Lord's table uh, where we hear what it means uh, that, that Christ died for you. Uh, we want to hear the discerning of the body of Christ. And so that's, that's how we understand this. That's not something that is done by infants, obviously. And that's really not something that can be done by the unlearned, by the ignorant. Um, And our confession talks about that, uh, that the ignorant and the scandalous are not to be admitted to the table. Uh, Ignorant meaning the unlearned, and the scandalous meaning those who are steeped in sin. Uh, And and the confession, our our catechism talks about the ignorant ignorant, and the uh, scandalous not being permitted to the table, not being permitted to partake of the supper. And that's uh, based on these principles found in Scripture. And so now we see that the supper is to be carefully guarded by the church as a whole. And and I've already alluded to that. Uh, But there are very, very specific reasons for this. We see that God threatens personal judgment upon the unworthy partaker. Uh, and I don't, like that. I don't like the way that that's phrased because it's not the partaker that's unworthy. 
it is unworthily partaking. Uh, we're all unworthy. There's no such thing as a worthy partaker. We're all unworthy. We're made worthy because we are united to Christ. And so really it's God threatens personal judgment upon those partaking unworthily. And we see that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. So Paul says there is a result of not discerning the Lord's body. What is that result? Yeah, the result is uh, people becoming weak and sick and even dying as a result of partaking unworthily, partaking in an unworthy manner. Uh, They eat and drink damnation to themselves. The judgment of God uh, that is seen there. Uh, that God will temporally judge them for their actions of, of partaking in an unworthy manner. Uh, and it's, it's clear this is not talking about eternal damnation, but uh, a temporal judgment. In uh, that case is made clear uh, in verses 31 uh, 31 and 32, for if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So it is a judgment that is placed upon us. So we judge ourselves so that we are not judged of the Lord. And uh, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But even if the Lord does judge us in this life for partaking unworthily, it's not an act of condemnation, but is instead uh, a chastening so that we would not be condemned. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. And so we're not talking about eternal damnation here. And so what we're seeing is there is a temporal judgment that that the Lord uh, brings upon those who partake in an unworthy manner, and it is physical weakness, physical illness, and physical death. That's that's, That's a weighty thing. And that in and of itself ought to be enough to cause you to seriously examine yourself as Paul says. And so the impetus or the weight of of this self-judging falls upon the self. 
You are to examine yourselves. You are to discern the Lord's body. And so the the weight of it falls upon the individual. But we remember that this is not simply an individual sacrament. It is a communal sacrament. That's why we call it communion. Uh, We are communing with Christ and we are communing with one another. And so if partaking in an unworthy manner threatens the Lord's judgment upon you, then it is necessary to protect the whole body that the elders of the church should ensure to the best of their capabilities that no person comes to the table and partakes unworthily. And so the church must exercise authority in barring from her communion, from membership, those who hold to false doctrine. By inference, then, she's also to bar from the Lord's Supper, the special act of communion, those who hold to false doctrine. If, if there is a false teaching that someone holds to, then we must protect the flock from that. Um, Sadly, some elders do not do this. I know of one church, not in our denomination, who has permitted uh, a Bardian, uh, someone who follows the teaching of Karl Barth, into their membership, into their communicant membership. This is a Presbyterian church. Um, and if you don't know who Karl Barth is, fine, don't worry about it. He's a heretic and a terrible person. Uh, but this person who follows this false teaching of Bardianism was allowed into the church. And that's a problem. And then there's a greater problem that they're allowing him to teach uh, classes in the church. Well, now he has a platform to be able to spread this false teaching. And so there's a protection, there's a shepherding aspect that the shepherds have to uphold. If a wolf is at the gate and says, I know I look like a wolf and my fangs are big, But I promise you, I'm a sheep. It's the duty of the elders, it's the duty of the shepherd to ensure that that gate stays closed and that the wolf can't hop over the gate. What would happen to that shepherd if there was a wolf at the gate and the shepherd opened the gate and allowed that wolf in? Do you think that shepherd would be allowed to continue tending to that flock? No. Same should be for elders who allow wolves in. Especially wolves who are very uh, clear to see. There are some wolves that are able to disguise themselves. There's some, some wolves that become 
change from sheep to wolves mm -hmm. in the years of teaching. And that's a lot harder than serving sometimes. Or and, and deal with it because um, you know, there are already members are already in and then their their theology changes. I'm thinking of some people we had in this church we didn't even understand the poison of the federal vision. But they, they moved from where we were more more federalists if you more Doug Wilsonites. And we didn't understand what that meant at the time. Now, that's that's the next problem is understanding what, what the threat is. Mm -hmm. And uh, none of us were up to speed on that one. We are now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Years later. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes the sheep get uh, poisoned by the false teachings mm -hmm. that may not be within the church, but are coming from without the church. And uh, they must be dealt with as well. Uh, in Titus 3.10, we read uh, Titus 3.10 and 11, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. So there, you'll see there that it's not just Okay, someone begins holding to a false teaching. Let's immediately just boot them. We see that if he's, an, if, he's, if he's a heretic, there's to be a first and second admonition. But after that, then reject him. So there's an attempt at, at correction and restoration prior to rejection. Um, and so we got to be careful of that. As elders, this is our duty. As members in the congregants in the congregation, yeah, you have a duty to recognize these things and to bring them to our attention. You do not have a duty or a responsibility to be the ones that uh, bring about the admonition or the rebuke unless they're, they're expressing these false teachings in a public way and you can rebuke them in, in that public context. But if you know that this is a thing, if you've, if you've seen it on their social media or you've heard it in private conversation, bring it to the elders who can do it through the right channels. Uh, Sometimes we're the last huh? Sometimes we can be the last no, they purposely yeah. won't talk. Yeah, it'll be hidden from us. Yeah. They'll teach others, but they won't talk about it around us. So yeah, like if if they're if they're publicly promoting it, then publicly call them out. Sins of Famiclamosa, those those that are of a, a, a famous nature, uh, those that are done in the public square, can be rebuked publicly and ought to be rebuked publicly. Uh but otherwise, you know, let us know. Also, let us know, even if even if it's done in public, let us know, um, because the elders are the ones who are to do this. Paul's writing this letter uh, to Titus, who is 
the pastor in Crete. And so he's telling him that this is what the elders are to do. This is what you are to do as the pastor. Uh, This is not uh, Paul writing to a whole congregation. Then we see in 2 John uh, verses 10 and 11, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. And here uh, the apostle is talking about uh, bringing in people who hold to a different doctrine, who hold to a false doctrine. And the bringing in, the receiving of members is the duty of the elders as well. Um, Then we see that the church must exclude from her membership and from her table those who profess to be Christians but live immoral lives. And we've talked about this passage before in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, verses 7 through 13. Can I get someone to read that? First Corinthians five, seven through thirteen. So here we see the apostle saying, do not eat with uh, a person who says that he's a brother, but is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. Uh, Don't uh, allow the hypocrite to remain among you. Um, And... They are to put away those wicked people, uh, meaning to cast them out. And here, specifically, uh, Paul is addressing a, an issue of a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law, committing an incestuous act, and uh, that he is to be uh, delivered over unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But then Paul switches and uses that specific example to move to the general uh, of anyone who calls themselves a brother 
and does these things. Anyone who is blatantly living a hypocritical life, who is living an immoral life and unrepentant sin, ought to be cast off as well. In 2 Thessalonians uh, 3.6, we read Paul say, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition uh, which he received of us. That we are to remove ourselves, withdraw ourselves. Uh, meaning that we're not to have uh, true fellowship with these hypocrites who have denied the doctrine of, of the church, who have denied the traditions that the apostles have handed down, who have denied the law of God and live ungodly lifestyle. Um, and so... Here we, we see uh, that there is a need to protect the congregation from these uh, hypocrites and from these false teachers. Uh, and then there's a need to uh, protect the church from those ignorant who want to come to the table but can't discern the Lord's body. And uh, just as the individual partaking unworthily can become weak and sickly and even die, the congregation which partakes unworthily, the congregation which allows uh those who would be partaking unworthily to come to the table is at risk uh, of corporately eating and drinking damnation upon themselves and becoming weak and sickly or even dying as well. Uh, and you can see that in churches. I would argue that the reason that there are so many weak, sickly, and even dying churches even within evangelicalism, even within the Reformed community, is because they are uh, constantly, continually partaking of the supper in an unworthy manner, either by not observing what Christ has instituted and how he has said the supper is to be partaken of, uh, by not emphasizing the due preparation that is needed before coming to the table or by allowing the ignorant and the scandalous to partake of the meal. Uh, and, and that is why we see so many churches weak, sickly, or even dying. And so it is the responsibility of the elders to ensure that the table is not profaned in this way. Uh, the means observed by, by some Reformed bodies, including our own denomination, the RPCNA, is to guard the Lord's table through the practice of session-guarded communion or, or session-controlled communion. 
that's different from what other uh, congregations may do and what other denominations may do. Um, and so really there's three views. The first one is open communion, which means that anyone who desires to commune can commune. The table is open to everyone. Uh, the standards to determine when the individual may come to the table is left to the individual's conscience alone. Uh, in these congregations, at most, there would be a verbal warning against eating and drinking unworthily. Uh, there would be a verbal uh, statement about the need for self-examination. That's at most. Um, in actuality, in most congregations that would hold to open communion, they don't even do that. Um, where you see this most often would be in broad evangelicalism, uh, where, and this is a statement that, that I've heard numerous times, you may hear in some of these churches, if you're a member of a Bible-believing church, then this table is for you. And that's, that's it. That's the extent of uh, guarding the table, of fencing the table. And uh, in actuality, the elders have no means of ensuring that those who are partaking of the supper are those who are members of the church, are members of a Bible-believing church. Uh, they have no means of ensuring that um, all those who partake of the supper are even Christians, uh, have even made a profession of faith. And so uh, this view denies the scriptural duty of the church and her elders to protect the table by actions as well as words. It weakens the authority of the church as the pillar and ground of truth as we see in 1 Timothy. And it stresses the importance of personal responsibility, but individualizes it to the exclusion of accountability before the church. So uh, this view really is a, a, an example of the individualizing of the church, where our individualistic culture has dominated the church. And so it just becomes about, well, do I feel like I should go partake of the supper? Yeah, I should. Um, it has nothing to do with examination before the elders or anything. Uh, another view would be close communion or even closed communion. Uh, and that's that members in good standing of a certain denomination or congregation only are permitted to come to the table. Uh, the standard to determine when the individual should commune is the individual conscience, the elder's judgment, and the, the denomination's theological standard. Um, There is a verbal warning that is given. Uh, there is a call for self-examination. 
And then there's oversight of the elders on the basis of the denominational denomination's theological standard. Um, this used to be the position of the RPCNA. Um, we used to have what was called terms of communion, where only those who agreed uh, with the terms of communion and uh, were members of a congregation that held to the same terms of communion were allowed to partake of the supper. So there was always some type of discussion with an elder hmm. back then. Not this is before me. Um, um, there would be discussion with an elder uh, in order for you to receive a token. Yeah. So during during the communion season, in the time between communion uh, services, so those three months between the communion services the elders would go to their group of congregants if there was a large congregation or the elders would go to all of the members of the congregation if it was a small congregation. And every member of the congregation was had a shepherding visit with their elders every three months prior to communion. Um, and in that, there was very difficult questions that were asked and raised uh, it was pointed uh, with the intention of understanding where someone is spiritually how they are, how husbands and fathers are doing and leading their families and in, in family worship um, and in that visit following uh, the visit the elder would then either give the family their token to take communion or they wouldn't. And they would try to schedule a meeting uh, a little bit later, but still prior to communion. Um, now, obviously, if something came up and there was a matter of grave sin after an elder had already met with someone and they received their token, that token can be taken away. Um, if you go to the Bloomington congregation in Bloomington, Indiana, they have a display cabinet. They also have one at the center, and there's some communion tokens. Uh, they're like like coins, essentially, that uh, were made and given out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, so that's it's historically yeah. uh, what we were doing. And. Let me, let, me, let me read where it says, how should we assess this? It says, the denominational agreement tends to become standard rather than agreement along with consistent practice. It appears to be inconsistent to accept members who have not given un unqualified allegiance to all the denominational doctrinal standards while excluding from the table other believers outside the church because they cannot do so. It provides a consistent biblical basis for fellowship among believers and for administration of discipline. And it effectively turns the Lord's table into the denomination's table. 
thereby denying the Catholicity of the true church of Jesus Christ. Um, and I, I don't agree with the assessment 100%. I think they make some, some valid points. Um, I think one thing to commend this view for is that it does provide a biblical, uh, a consistent biblical basis for fellowship among believers and for administration of discipline. Um, I think it's commendable that this view necessitates the elders being involved in the lives of each and every member of the congregation and doing regular house visits. Um, and just so you know, these visits weren't the elder plans it three weeks in advance. These visits were a couple of elders show up at your house at six o'clock in the evening one day and you bring them in and they sit down for dinner. It's unexpected. They didn't plan their visits because they wanted to see everything in its natural context. Um, I mean, it's easy to put on a show when you know that the elders are coming. Uh, it's a lot more difficult when they show up as you're sitting down at the table to eat your family dinner. Your prayers, God bless this chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, there are things about this position that are commendable and that I think we should really strive to emulate. Um, but I would agree that it does tend to elevate those terms of communion to a greater standard than what Scripture gives for who may come to the table. Um, now, obviously, we should be striving for a, a doctrinal purity and unity within the body, but even within this congregation there are doctrinal differences uh, some of you may be post-millennial some of you may be amillennial uh, some of you uh, may not uh, may hold to women deacons some of you may not hold to women deacons uh, so there's variations of of doctrinal positions that are had even within this body. Um, there's not doctrinal uniformity in our congregation. And, and this position, closed communion, really fell out when we changed our understanding of, of being a member in the, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, so before the... To become a member of the church, you had to agree to those terms of communion. Um, and so there, it was, you had to agree with the doctrines of the church. And if you didn't agree with the doctrines of the church, you couldn't become a member. Now, it, we don't require that uh, sort of subscription of the members. What we require is a submission to the the teaching and government of the church. Um, and so as the requirement of uh, agreeing fully with the terms of communion fell out in regards to membership, 
then our understanding of how we do communion had to uh, change as well. Um, and it did. And so we went from close communion to session guarded communion. Yeah, so the, the shift from closed communion to session-guarded communion occurred. Um, and this says anyone who has publicly professed Christ may commune, and that is wrong. Uh, it's not anyone who has uh, publicly professed Christ. Um, it is anyone who has publicly professed Christ as member in good standing of a church and is admitted to the table by the the elders of the church. And has been baptized. And yeah, has been baptized. Usually, if they remember the Yeah. So it's always one of those little tricky questions. You know, you may you may remember when we interviewed you coming to the table, we asked, Are you baptized? If so, when were you baptized? Where were you baptized? Um So uh, there were there were some people who were baptized as infants and then later baptized as as believers. Uh, your first one counted. Uh, there, many of you were baptized in Roman Catholic churches, and we we accept those baptisms. Um, so we ask about your baptism. We ask about your membership. Where were you a member of? Uh, because if you're not a member of the visible church, then you're not permitted to the table. Because to not be a member of the visible church is to be living in sin. And the table is the table of the Lord given to His church. And if you're not a member of the church, this is not for you. Um, and then hearing the professional profession of faith and uh, getting it, it in that profession of faith. It's not just, oh, I, I said this prayer when I was 10 years old and now I'm a Christian. It's we want to hear in that profession of faith, you discerning the Lord's body, you explaining what the gospel is, what it means that Christ's body was broken for you and his blood shed for you. And so. The standards for coming to uh, the table and participating 
is uh, your individual conscience, but also the elder's judgment. And so you'll see, we give a verbal warning uh, every Lord's Day before we partake of the table. There's that final warning that is given. Uh, Leading up to the Lord's Day when we have communion, there is the call for self-examination. That is one of the reasons why we do communion seasons is to emphasize the preparation, the self-examination for coming to the table. And if you haven't communed with us, you'll hear me say this very often. If you've never communed with us and you desire to, please plan to meet with the session. Um, And that's because we have to be the ones that uh, permit someone to come to the table. You may recall, uh, I think it was back in my sermon on the sacraments in general, that Paul says that it is the elders who are the stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, And that word mystery, the Greek word mysterion, is translated into Latin as sacramentum, which is where we get the word sacraments. And so these sacraments are mysteries in how God works through them. Uh, And the elders are given these sacraments along with the other mysteries of God to be stewards of them. And part of being stewards of these sacraments is ensuring that only those who are uh, permitted uh, according to Scripture to partake of them are the ones that do so. And so this stresses the elders' role in properly administering the sacrament. It maintains the proper balance between individual conscience before God and corporate accountability before the church. Just so you know, at any time, if you do not believe that you have prepared yourself to come to the table, or if you know that there is a sin issue that you are still working through at the time the supper comes, and you feel as though you need to abstain from the supper that time, you are well within your rights to do so. Just because you've been admitted to the table doesn't mean that you have to come every time. Uh, and it's, it's wise to not come to the table if you know there is something going on within your heart that needs to be dealt with. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says, if you come before the altar to give your sacrifice and you realize you have alt against your brother... Leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to him. You know, it's better to leave your act of worship to not partake of it and to work out through those issues, through those sin issues, than to uh, worship and partake in an unworthy manner. But don't let that... Don't let that become morbid introspection where you're constantly seeing every little flaw within your life so that you never come to the table. Uh, that happens a lot in some Dutch congregations. Uh, I heard of one uh, Dutch congregation 
that you know they had they had probably four hundred people in their congregation, four hundred communicant members in their congregation, and on any given Lord's Day when they would partake of the supper, only about ten people would partake. You know that's a problem. So in it, when it becomes morbid introspection, and it's keeping you from coming to the table every time, then that's a problem. Um, the table is for the weak and for the doubting. It's for those who need strengthened by Christ. And so come to the table. It is, it is grace. Yeah. And that grace is given to us. And we need it. So, you know, um, if, if you're in blatant sin, yes, abstain. But if, if you're having doubts, if you're things like that, you know, it, it's grace. It can, it can be very useful. God gives God gives us His grace, mm-hmm. and, and uh, we need to partake in that. And it uh, and it prevents the privatization of faith and roots its exercise in the bodily life of the visible church. It it makes this it emphasizes this is not an individualistic religion, that it is a corporate religion. Uh, the Great Commission is one of the grounds upon which this uh, practice is founded. Uh, Christ says that we are to teach uh, disciples all that he has commanded us. And so there is an instructional aspect that's required prior to them coming to the table. Uh, we see in Acts 2 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching into the breaking of bread. So once again, uh, this emphasis on a right understanding of the teaching of the church. Um, And then uh, in Hebrews, we read that the elders are those who will give an account of the souls over which they have been given authority. And so uh, we are held accountable for you even in your coming to the Lord's table and in being held accountable to, uh, to the Lord for that, we must ensure that we are permitting only those who uh, meet the standard, meet the requisite uh, to come to the table. Um, I personally uh, love session-guarded communion. I, I think that uh, I think that some some people may take it a little bit more loosely than they should. Um, Some do too tightly. Yeah, and I may, I may, I may, I may err on the side of a little more tightly. Well, uh, we, we interviewed William Spear once. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would interview an el- uh, a pastor who was visiting with us. Yeah, seminary professor. Um, but, you know, there, I'm of the opinion that even if you're a member of an RP congregation, if I don't know you, then you need to be uh, interviewed. Um, and our Blue Book does give a little freedom uh, there. It specifically says that those who are unknown to the session are to be interviewed. Um, and so, you know, I think I think that everyone who is not 
known to the session needs to be interviewed. I don't care. I don't care if you were interviewed and, and partook of the supper here, you know, 25 years ago. You're not known to the session anymore. Uh, I don't care if you're a member at Sparta. You're not known to the session here if you're just visiting. And so, you know, I think there needs to be that stricter understanding that anyone who's not known to the session needs to be interviewed. Um, there are congregations that will permit those who are not members of a visible church to come to the Lord's table. And that's wrong. Um, and so, you know, there is, there is some that are more loose. That are, there are some that are more strict. I tend to err on the side of more strict. I personally would probably land somewhere in between close communion and session-guarded communion. Um, I really, really appreciate the pastoral care that is required for close communion. That they're... Every member of the congregation is getting visited in their homes on a quarterly basis. And the tough questions are being asked. It's not just, you know, a time of get together so that we can eat and enjoy each other's company. You know, it's the hard questions. What are the sins you're struggling with? How are you conducting family worship in your house? You know, how are you loving your wife well? How are you submitting to your husband well? Uh, asking those tough questions and uh, you know I'm not against I'm not against bringing back the communion tokens uh, while also permitting visitors to meet with session members to be admitted to the table as well uh, but I, I, I do I do like the uh, I like the pastoral oversight and care that is given to the congregation in close communion that's easily neglected when we just do session guarded. All right, so any questions in regards to uh, partaking unworthily uh, or being admitted to the table, our position on session guarded or session controlled communion? Are there, are there any questions about this? All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Uh, Isaac, can I get you to pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to celebrate one more of your days. Uh, we thank you that you have allowed us to uh, rejoice with our brethren. Uh, we pray that you will